Hello, and welcome to the NPRD podcast with nurse practitioner and registered dietitian Robin Kivit. Eating disorders, body image, medicine, they are all interconnected. But with so many programs, techniques, and advice to choose from, it's easy to be overwhelmed. Robin, with more than 25 years of experience as a nurse practitioner and registered dietitian, offers help and hope for everyone, families, children, and adults. Along with veteran talk show host and good friend, Jordan Rich, Robin invites you to learn much more right here on the NPRD podcast. Hello, this is Robin. Welcome to another edition of the NPRD in January 2022. We are super fortunate to have the author, one of the authors of an amazing new book, Sumner Brooks. Her book is, along with Amy Severson, How to Raise an Intuitive Eater, Raising the Next Generation with Food and Body Confidence. Sumner is a mom herself and licensed registered dietitian based in Oregon, and she's spent over 13 years working in the field of nutrition and eating disorders. Her experience includes nutrition therapy for adolescents, adults, public speaking and pursuing advanced training in trauma-informed weight-inclusive health care. She's passionate about this. She's also the founder of the online training platform Eating Disorder Registered Dietitians and Professionals, otherwise known as EDRD Pro. And so welcome, Sumner. Hi, Robin. Thank you so much for inviting me to join you. Yeah. When I saw your book come across, I think it was either, I think it was an email initially. I pre-ordered it in seconds and so excited about it. Um, Sumner and I met Jordan and to our listeners, I think we've, I've known of your, of you for a long time. And then a couple of years ago, a colleague and I did a talk to the International Association of Eating Disorder Professionals on body dysmorphic disorder, and Sumner asked us if we would put that together as a webinar, and we did, and I think it went well. Um, It was amazing. Yeah, I loved the in-person version as well. Oh, that's right, because you were there. So you got, Mm -hmm. yeah, you got the full... um, you got the full experience. Because, so we're dealing with a bi-coastal yeah. collegial team here. Yes. Oregon and Massachusetts. <laughs> yes. Well represented. Yeah. So you and Amy, you know, we want to hear more about the journey in getting to the book. It takes such a long time to do these these huge projects. And you know, you described it to us prior to going on air today as not necessarily a how-to book, if I'm getting that correctly, um, but more of a book around, you know, describing how to set the stage. And so I'd love to hear more from you specifically on, you know, how and why you and Amy put this together this way. Yes. Um So it is and it isn't a how-to book. Um, It is in the sense that we provide a lot of education and guidance and really do kind of start paving the pathway for how to change what's happening at home in terms of food and body relationships for your family. 
Um, but it isn't a how-to book in terms of like, we know that this is a very complex set of issues. There is no one right way for this to look for every family. And so within us providing guidelines through the three keys that we created, we also leave a lot of space for people to understand that this can and will look very different for different families and situations and different kids and that there isn't one right outcome. And we're really trying to help instill this understanding that there is no perfect eating, there's no perfect healthy body, and that a lot of that messaging that we get, which comes from kind of the mainstream nutrition and health advice, is problematic and misleading and actually harmful. So in terms of setting the stage, um, we do take the first two parts of the book to, number one, really help fully inform the reader on what the problem is that we're seeing. And you and I and our colleagues within the eating disorder field are extremely aware of this critical issue facing young people, which is there, um, there's an extreme hyper-focus on body and size and weight and healthy eating um, within the medical and more kind of parent areas. There's overemphasis on BMI and body size and thinness. And what we wanted to do really is help parents who don't have access to the research and don't really understand all the nuance here, we really wanted to help them see the truth of why it is that all of this, which is rooted in diet mentality, is causing harm to our kids and hurting them, you know, for their future. One of the, and that's a lot of information. No, it is, but it's great. And I'm so glad, thankful for them. One of the words I ask people not to use, and I, I'm just speaking to it because it came up in what you just said, is I really ask them to not use the word healthy because it really bothers me. And I think that in this section, the one key, and I'll state it out loud, key one is providing is to provide unconditional love and support for your child's body. And then you go into this chap in this chapter, you talk about the triad of connection and helping kids feel seen. And as clinicians working with patients with eating disorders, we see that we see the unseen all the time. And seeing a person, seeing your own child, which also means seeing yourself, is is tough, but I, I love that you you went through this um, through this piece. Um, yeah, and we know that so many kids, um, even kids who will never be diagnosed with an eating disorder, whether that's because they don't have a clinical severity for an eating disorder or they um, some other barrier is in the way and they're not getting treatment. But whatever the reason, there's an entire spectrum of disordered eating and eating disorders. And we know that the truth is, is that the, um, for the most part, it's not about nutrition information. And yet yeah. a lot of times what parents are being told or what they're hearing is if you think there's a problem with food, then the answer is more education about food or teaching kids about 
how they should be eating or over-controlling their eating. Um, so all of this kind of solution talk that we hear and that parents really get is about controlling food. And it's just missing so much of the picture of what's actually influencing these dysregulated and disordered eating patterns. Right. It misses being seen completely. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, have a, I have a question for both of you. Um, and I, I love the title because it has the word intuitive in it, Sumner. And I want to ask both of you this question as a, as a layperson. Intuition is a very positive human trait. And uh, do you, each of you look at it as, in a sense, a muscle that can be uh, trained and improved upon? And what blocks the intuitive process? Is it all this social media? Is it the lack of communications? What's causing not just eating disorder issues, but other issues with people who just don't seem to have that intuitive spark? Well, I really like that question about what kind of blocks us or what buries our intuition with food because we are born intuitive eaters. We are born having this amazing um, complex system in our bodies of telling us when we're hungry and telling us when we're full Mm -hmm. and helping us to be curious and to naturally seek out the food that we need. I mean, it's it's just miraculous how we are born to know how to eat, and yet that is stripped away from us or it is covered up quite early on inside of a culture that puts so much emphasis on external rules and good and bad thinking about food and really too much emphasis on nutrition. And and all of that has really kind of been wrapped up in this um, kind of craziness and chaos about controlling body size. And I know that that, too, is a really complex topic in and of itself um, because bodies are all different for different reasons, and body diversity is real. But when we kind of fall into this assumption that all bodies are supposed to be thin or have a, quote, normal BMI, those are the things that really do take us away from our intuitive eating abilities because we start eating more with our head and more according Mm -hmm. to rules instead of what our body needs and what the wisdom of our body. And you talk about that in, you know, I I think it's in chapter eight when you talk about the second, the second key, which is implement a flexible and reliable feeding routine. Um, And you talk about, you know, how we're born, some of us, can breastfeed our kids or are breastfed and it's so um you know it's on demand right mm-hmm. and and then we 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 move away from that um to to different things but you also wrote in bold here i think it's on page 173 your most important job when it comes to food is to do your best to make food available at reliable times and yeah. I, I'm, you're speaking to parents there i think right What we want parents to understand with key two is that the heart of this is about conveying a sense for the child of trust and consistency. And the way we can think about this is that is the very first thing we do for an infant is we help them establish this trust that their caregiver will get them the food that they need when they need it in a consistent manner. 
Um, and that is huge. Psychologically, developmentally, one of the most important things that happens in infancy in this relationship between the infant and the caregiver is the food and the feeding relationship. Mm. Um, and that's how early this can be disrupted, uh, whether it's something out of someone's control, like there's a physiological you know, feeding issue right. or an illness or something, or whether it's more something that, um, you know, like a parent is with, withholding food or restricting food because they've been told to for some reason. Yeah, it does go into a lot of the attachment pieces, which you do talk about in the book yeah. as well. We also really wanted to emphasize, um, you know, cognitive flexibility and how parents often, again, just because of mainstream, what we call in the book is the status quo, but um, we've really lost sight for the most part, parents have, of the importance of flexibility with food because we sort of, we sort of like put food and feeding and nutrition in this box that it's like just as simple as setting rules and having really, you know, clear expectations about how kids should eat and what they should eat. And we aren't implementing a lot of flexibility for the most part, or if we do, and I'm saying we as in parents, if we do, we kind of feel guilty about it or mm-hmm. we feel like we're doing something wrong. Um, and so we want parents to understand that the feeding relationship does kind of parallel other, other um, parts of our relationship with our child and how the way that we're interacting with food, like if we're unintentionally shaming a child for how they eat or for for what they want to eat, that's going to be something that's going to be absorbed and it will probably um, impact, you know, their view of themselves, their sense of self, maybe their self-esteem, maybe the the trust that they have with their body. Mm. And that it's so important that we acknowledge that how we all relate to to food and to our bodies is a really big part of our relationship with ourselves as a whole. And I, I know that you, Robin, can understand how much eating disorder recovery and healing one's relationship with food is really about healing your relationship with yourself. That's right. The key three chapter, which is chapter nine, develop and use your intuitive eating voice, you write here showing, just to kind of come off what you were saying, showing your child that emotions are linked to eating is a great thing, but we need to to separate that from the diet mentality. Come away from things like, I can't believe you're eating that. You've had so much sugar today. How could you be craving that? You know, this is skipping over things like not saying that about ourselves in front of our kids. I always say to parents and certainly to to new patients that I start to see for eating disorders that they've actually been learning and hearing since they were in utero. <laughs> and I don't really know if there's much science behind that, but I think there's just so much connection. And they, we know they're definitely hearing even before they have language. And not only just hearing, but it's really, they are so able to sense how we feel Mm -hmm. Um, and that gets passed down but really you know I would gently encourage 
parents to realize that over the course of 10 years, and the first 10 years is something that I've been talking about more with these topics, that we have this really precious window of time in the first 10 years where we're around our kids when they're eating more than we will be any other time in their life. After they reach 10, they're eating more outside the house, they're independent, and then by the time they're in their late teens, they're, for the most part, we hope that they're independent eaters. And um, so over that first 10 years, how many thousands and tens of thousands, if not more, experiences have there been where they have heard how we talk about food and mm. body, whether it's to ourselves about our own body, to someone else's body in the house or a stranger's body, or about food, or ordering, or guilt, or cheating, you know, all of these things. It's a huge collection of influence. And I think, like, that would be a way to really summarize what we're trying to tell people, like, how important this is, that think about what you really want to visualize for your child, you know, when they're ready to leave the house, when they're ready to be independent and not only independent with food, but independent with their self-care and respecting their body and taking care of their body. What have we shown them up to that moment? Well, and I I think because a lot of that is for for a lot of the grownups, right? It's the taking away, the restricting, that it has to be this way. I have to do this. I should do this. What you just spoke to is is different than that. One of the things I read on page 202 in the key, I think it's key three, you wrote here as a a bullet point, my body is none of your business. And that just jumped out at me because I've been saying to folks since the fall, uh, my body is my business, right? Um, And going into holidays this year really trying to help build people up that way. And in fact, that was part of this talk that our collaborative did to a school. And so I just love that. I love my body is none of your business um, or, you know, my body is my business. Um, Yeah, that really came up for me when my daughter was entering, you know, kindergarten and I started to just realize, oh, my gosh, there's going to be all of these experiences she's going to have when I'm not there to kind of guide her or support her. And of course we know that kids talk about bodies and kids talk about other bodies and for all kinds of reasons. And I just realized she needed to have something with her um, that she knew could be a response that could be respectful towards herself and caring towards herself and help help defend her if needed, right? Right. Um, If someone's saying something to you that doesn't feel good, what do we do about that when we're six years old? Yeah. And how do we stand in ourselves and be confident around that? Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is there any, are there any other points, Sumner, that you'd like to, to talk to us about or, you know, speak to our listeners about around the book and, you know, the journey you and Amy have been on to, to, bring this to publication? Yeah, I think, um, you know, this is the only book of its kind, really. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it speaks to how, while so many areas of parenting and parenting books and resources and, you know, 
child psychology. They're, everything is evolving and has evolved, which has been so necessary. But kind of as as it's gone before with nutrition, nutrition just kind of gets left behind. And we really feel like it is past due that the way we're talking about feeding kids needs to evolve. I mean, we're very much stuck in decades-old kind of narrative around, you know, everything from, like, what you say at the dinner table to how you get your child to eat to, you know, punishing with food. It's it's still very much um, normalized. And so we just hope that this really gets on the radar of everyone who interacts with kids and who has an influence over children um, because it's important that we evolve with the rest of the world. And again, like I said earlier, just our relationship with food and body is so critical and it's so tied to mental health and the state of kind of pediatric health and nutrition right now is just incredibly laser focused on weight um, and the quote childhood obesity epidemic and we're leaving out huge gaps about the importance of supporting kids and teaching about body diversity. Um, and so we hope that this fills some of those gaps. So I just, I couldn't agree more with everything you said. I feel, and I'm hopeful, because I think your your kiddos are around the same age as my youngest. My daughter's nine. And I'm just so hopeful for them that it will be different. It's going down a different path, and we have to work on it. And we're the grown-ups. Yeah. And even the grandparents, you know, oh, yes. like you're never yes. too old to, <laughs> to learn this stuff. And to start, these are these are actually, you know, they're super important and complex, but it also can be very simple to start making some really simple shifts at home that could feel very different for a child. Um, and, of course, you know, the younger you get to this information and the younger you can start implementing some of this, the better, but also with, you know, middle-aged kids, middle school-age kids and beyond, you know, I'm still influenced by the things that my parents do and say around me, (laughs) and I'm going to be 40. So, you know, it's never too late to kind of repair and to shift and to go down a different path and to be open about this, and it's so helpful for our kids to see us change, you know, to see us acknowledge, you know what? That way of doing that isn't really working for me anymore. Right. So I've learned this, and I'm going to start. We're going to start doing this this way now, and that's totally okay. Yeah. Um, one of the biggest things that we kind of repeat, really, maybe to, maybe to a fault in the book, is just how important the self compassion is for parents who have only the best of intentions, and we know that. This is not about shaming and blaming anyone. It's really just about empowering us all and getting all of the information so we can then come to some conclusions about how we want to move forward at home. Yeah, because we're humans and we make mistakes and no one gives us a book to bring home from the hospital or wherever we give birth. Right. So this has been awesome. I'm so glad you and I got to connect again after we, you know, connected, I think, was it a year ago? I think we did the... I think it maybe was two. Two years ago. Oh my, oh my, no, was it? Oh my goodness. I think, I don't even know. Um, Wow, that's gone by fast. So thank you so much. And I, I just, I love your book. I love it. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much for the support. We truly appreciate it. We love our community and our 
just amazing colleagues and we're all in this together and the more the merrier. So spread the word. Will do. <laughs> Thank you. Take good care, Sumner. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. So once again, the name of the book we spoke to and reviewed today by Sumner Brooks and Amy Severson, both dietitians, eating disorder dietitians, How to Raise an Intuitive Eater, Raising the Next Generation with Food and Body Confidence, just released in hard copy. Please go get yours. Thank you for joining us for the NPRD podcast with Robin Kivit. We invite you to subscribe, download, rate and review us and share this valuable podcast with friends and family. Help and hope is found here. For more, just go to robinkivit.com. That's R-O-B-Y-N-K-I-E-V-I-T.com. Or check out the NPRD.com.